me uh, first and most importantly thank uh, the extraordinary turnout legislative leadership of the state. Last week, Governor Gavin Newsom of California got up in the rotunda of the Sacramento Capitol and made what was billed as a major policy announcement. Uh, It is humbling to see everybody here assembled uh, today. But this announcement was more like a policy argument, a closing statement, a full-throated case against the death penalty. The question really is, do we have the right to kill? Do we have the right to kill? That's a a deep and existential question. I I don't believe we do. You know, I know those things, people think eye for eye, but if you rape, we don't rape. I think if someone kills, we don't kill. We're better than that. Newsom was declaring a moratorium on executions, but he presented it as a kind of personal choice. He said as the person in charge of signing the death warrants for the 737 people on California's death row, he just couldn't do it. And we are, as I speak, as I speak, shutting down, removing the equipment in the death chamber at San Quentin. And then his office sent out a tweet, pictures of the electric chair and the lethal injection table being loaded onto a truck and carted away. I think it's sort of dramatically illustrating his commitment to not have executions go forward. Jordan Steiker has been watching this announcement play out. He's a death penalty lawyer in Texas. It's one thing to say, you know, I'm unlikely to sign death warrants going forward because I'm troubled by the practice. It's another thing to dismantle the execution chamber as a dramatic way of illustrating his commitment to that. Today on the show, Jordan's going to explain what this decision means for the rest of the country. The death penalty has already been abolished once in the U.S., then reinstated. Now California is pumping the brakes again, even though voters don't necessarily want to bring executions to a standstill. We're going to talk about that, too. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You've written about how California has this very particular history with the death penalty. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about 1972 and what happened then. Well, California was originally one of the states whose death penalty was going to be addressed by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1972. But before the Supreme Court could make its decision about the constitutionality of the death penalty, the California Supreme Court made the decision that the death penalty was unconstitutional under the state constitution. The California Supreme Court basically said that the death penalty was cruel in that uh, it was unnecessary from a sort of criminological perspective, that it didn't really serve 
any purpose of punishment, that it was unusual because of its arbitrary and discriminatory imposition. And so the California Supreme Court said under its own constitution, the practice shouldn't be tolerated. And then the voters responded to that decision by restoring, uh, amending the constitution to make the death penalty a permissible punishment and the legislature uh, reenacted a new capital statute. I think it's easy to forget that in the 70s, the Supreme Court in D.C. actually repealed the death penalty, too. And then the states found all these workarounds to get it back on the books. Can you tell me a little bit about how that happened? Like, why why did the Supreme Court repeal it? And what did we do to get it back in the law books? By the 1960s, the death penalty had declined substantially in the United States, It was widely available for a variety of crimes, not just murder, but in some states for armed robbery or kidnapping or rape. And states gave no guidance at all to either prosecutors or jurors about which cases were really the kinds of cases that called for the death penalty. And that was challenged on the grounds that the death penalty was being administered arbitrarily because there was no apparent rhyme or reason to who was receiving the death penalty and states had failed to give or communicate any theory of who were among the worst of the worst offenders. And so the Supreme Court said the absence of standards made it that the death penalty was arbitrary. And in the famous language of Justice Stewart, he said, the death penalty strikes like lightning. There's no rhyme or reason to who receives it. And so the Supreme Court basically said all of the prevailing death penalty statutes were defective. And most people thought that that was the end of the death penalty, but states quickly reacted and passed a variety of different kinds of statutes to address the problem. And some states made the death penalty mandatory for certain offenses, which the Supreme Court found to be unconstitutional. And the other states passed statutes that sort of created a new sort of category of capital murder and created aggravating circumstances. And in 1976, the Supreme Court upheld a few of those new statutes, and that's what resurrected the American death penalty. Hmm. So I guess what comes to my mind is that we've been here before. You know, Gavin Newsom has put a moratorium on the death penalty, which will affect California, which is a huge number of people who are on death row. But you've said that what you think is happening now is different than what happened in the 70s. And I'm wondering why. Why do you think what's happening in California could lead to something bigger in the United States, whereas back in the 70s, we kind of went through this process and were reset? So in the 1960s and early 1970s, when the Supreme Court and the state courts came to the problem of the death penalty, there had been virtually no regulation of the death penalty in this country. So the Supreme Court had never imposed any significant restraints on how the death penalty was administered. Today, like in the 1960s, we have had a tremendous decline in the death penalty. And yet we've also had four decades or so of significant constitutional regulation of the death penalty, an effort to solve some of the problems of the death penalty. It's it's arbitrary administration, it's discriminatory administration, error in capital cases, and 
looking back, almost nobody thinks that this regulation has been successful. We still have many of the same problems. And in fact, some of those problems are, are more dramatically illustrated than, than they were then. In the 1970s, there was always a suspicion that occasionally there might be a wrongful conviction or a wrongful execution. And today, with the advent of more advanced forensic science, we've had you know, over 150 people released from death row as wrongfully convicted. So I think today there's this sense that the problems with the death penalty are more deeply embedded and intractable than they were in the early 1970s. So in the early 1970s, the response was, well, there may be problems with the death penalty, but we can fix them if we put our minds to it and we we create new special protections. And today we have those same problems. So I, I think there's a sense that we've kind of run out of options to make the death penalty system work. I also just think the larger climate is so different. In the early 1970s, there were, you know, the death penalty was still the norm throughout the world. Um, very few jurisdictions had abolished the death penalty by 1972. And today, the United States is an exceptional outlier in its retention of the death penalty, certainly an outlier among Western democratic countries, where the United States is the only advanced democratic Western country that retains the death penalty. All of Europe basically has rejected the death penalty as inconsistent with human dignity. It's virtually disappeared from South America, Central America. The the United States is basically in a club of rogue nations that continues to have the death penalty on the books and actual executions. And yet I was struck by the fact that nationwide support for the death penalty ticked up in 2018. Like that surprised me because of all the things you're saying. Well, when you say that the support for the death penalty ticked up, it it ticked up from its modern day low to its second to modern day low. I think we're still around in the low 60% of people who say they support the death penalty in response to the Gallup poll simple question about whether or not you support the death penalty for murder. We had reached a support for the death penalty in the 80s. Over 80% of the American public said they supported the death penalty in the 1990s, and we've dropped considerably. But Um, 60%, like a presidential candidate, would kill for those numbers. Well, 60%, though, I think is also a misleading number, because if you ask the additional question whether or not you support the death penalty as opposed to life in prison without possibility of parole, then the support for the death penalty dips below 50%. And every death penalty jurisdiction has the alternative of life without possibility of parole. So a majority of Americans would reject the death penalty given the alternative of life without possibility of parole. So we really are at sort of unprecedentedly soft support for the death penalty. I think the only time where support for the death penalty, I think, was lower than it is now was really in the mid-1960s. It's also low in comparison to the support for the death penalty in the countries like England and France. When, When those countries abolished, they had much higher levels of support for the death penalty than we do today. California is kind of weird here. Only the voters can make the governor's decision permanent. 
And Californians have decided to uphold capital punishment twice in recent elections. But Jordan Stryker says, historically, things change after a moratorium. Scholars used to say that it was sort of the generic path to abolition is that first you would narrow the number of crimes that were eligible for the death penalty, then you'd have a slow weakening of the death penalty in terms of executions, then you'd have something like a a formal or an informal moratorium in which the jurisdiction lived without the death penalty for a certain period, and then that was often followed by legal abolition. You say support for the death penalty is weakening. I'm wondering if you can just lay out what that means, what that looks like. Well, so in the 1990s, this country experienced, in the mid-1990s, we had about 300 death sentences nationwide per year, which was a pretty significant number of death sentences. Over the last several years, we've had fewer than 50 death sentences a year nationwide. So one marker of support for the death penalty is you know, how frequently are we using it to punish people who commit homicide. And, you know, we're now in a, in a circumstance where we have, you know, three or four dozen death sentences a year nationwide in response to something like 15 or 16,000 homicides. So the death penalty is just not the primary way in which any jurisdiction today responds to violent crime. So are prosecutors giving the death penalty less often? Are defense attorneys getting better? Are juries less into it? I, I think all three. I think the most significant place where this is happening is prosecutors are just seeking the death penalty less, that they don't feel the political pressure to charge cases capitally and to seek the death penalty because there's just not nearly the political enthusiasm or popular enthusiasm for it. Partly that's because I think defense lawyering has improved over the last three or four decades, and there's a much greater energy in capital defense representation, a lot more investigation of mitigating evidence. And you know, in my own jurisdiction, there are a lot of cases where the prosecution seeks death and they, they aren't able to get it. So I think the combination of the better level of representation on the defense side the extraordinary cost of actually seeking the death penalty. Capital trials have become enormously expensive in part because of the increased representation. I think that's kind of influenced the decisions by prosecutors. You know, this moratorium in California, it's happening as the state is having this much wider conversation about criminal justice and criminal justice reform. Um, A few years back, the Supreme Court ruled that Overcrowding in prisons was such a big problem that it was unconstitutional. And as a result, California started um, releasing more people from prison. And over the last few years, they have seen this uptick in crime. No one knows why. They don't know if it's related. Do you think that that conversation could kind of muddle the conversation about the death penalty in California? I don't really think so. I mean, I think that in some ways... On the surface, they're very similar conversations about how much money and the state is spending on criminal justice and how punitive the state should be. But the reason that the conversations are, I think, are distinct is that nobody thinks that the death penalty is doing anything in terms of deterring significant crime. If you look at the states that have abandoned the death penalty, 
they don't have upticks in crime. So I, I think those debates are a bit different. Are there people who think the death penalty could be more of a deterrent? Like maybe if we did it more quickly, which would mean less opportunities for people to fight it in court, probably lots of terrible things would happen. But are there people who think that it could be a deterrent and we're just not doing it right? I think there are people who think that in the abstract, if you had a robust death penalty that was quickly and fairly administered, that that might deter crime. And people have argued that. The problem is we've not had any experience with that. And as you say, there's not a way you can't you know, press a switch and make the death penalty move more quickly without sacrificing constitutionally mandated values. Uh, Justice Breyer, when he, he dissented a few years ago in a lethal injection case, he basically said, you, you have a choice and you can have um, a death penalty system that possibly serves penological values by having it quickly and fairly administered or you can have a death penalty that adheres to constitutional values, and it's impossible to have both of those things. Hmm. You know, Newsom's moratorium, it's only going to remain in place as long as he stays in office. So four years, maybe eight. What is going to happen next in California? It's hard to say. I think I think the issue will, again, likely be on the ballot in 2020. So it's possible that California voters will presented a third time with the choice of repealing the death penalty might do so. Um, if if there's not the issue on the ballot or if it doesn't succeed, I think California will continue to have this quite symbolic death penalty in which people are sentenced to death, but there's not a real prospect of execution. I don't think executions are going to immediately pick up when Newsom leaves office. The death row will presumably continue to get larger. Sounds like purgatory. I think that's what it is. Jordan, thank you so much for talking to me today. My pleasure. Jordan Steiker runs the Capital Punishment Center at the University of Texas School of Law. Before we go, one last rabbit hole I jumped down this week. C-SPAN. Your unfiltered view of government, created by cable in 1979. This week, C-SPAN turns 40 years old. And okay, so it gave us Newt Gingrich, but it also gave us unfiltered access to democracy. Since it started back in 1979, the network's gone from four employees scrambling to get cameras inside the Capitol to a Washington institution broadcasting the inner workings of government most people wouldn't get to see otherwise. And at moments of high national drama, C-SPAN is the place to be, like during the Kavanaugh hearings or Michael Cohen's testimony. It's history-making stuff. That said, a lot of the day-to-day footage is kind of boring or just plain weird. Like, okay, my favorite call-in is from 2003 during an open phone show on the Iraq War. What kind of work do you do? um, I'm an entertainer. Oh, what kind of entertaining? Are you USO? No, I, I actually was called by the USO, but I'm 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 just I'm an entertainer. I I really I don't want to go much past that. But um, is this share? Yeah. Okay. 
And, uh, and you spent the day at Walter Reed. Yeah. And I spent the day with... I, mean, I knew other people at Slate would have their own personal C-SPAN highlights. So here's a little highlight reel. My name is Aria. I'm an audience engagement editor at Slate. And my favorite C-SPAN moment is when these two brothers were arguing on TV and their mom called in to tell them to stop. <laughs> Let's go to this Joy. <laughs> no, go to Joy in Raleigh, North Carolina. Good morning. Hey, somebody you, from down south. Well, you're right, I'm from down south. Oh, God's mom. And I'm your mother. And I, di- I disagree that all families are like ours. I don't know many families that are fighting at Thanksgiving. Is this, is this really your mother? No, it's not mom. It had to be one of the most embarrassing moments, at least in terms of secondhand embarrassment, I've ever seen in my life. And also, I could definitely picture my mom doing that to me and my sister. Anyway, happy 40th birthday, C-SPAN. I'm June Thomas. I'm the senior managing producer at Slate Podcasts. And I was watching weekend C-SPAN programming, which is something I've been doing for a very long time. And somebody said something that outraged me. I'm afraid I can't remember what it was. But what I do remember very clearly is being outraged, writing a letter to C-SPAN in high dudgeon and receiving in the mail by return a copy of the Pocket Constitution reminding me of the First Amendment and how it was my right to be outraged, but it was also their right to broadcast that outrage-inducing thing. It felt like the most American thing in the world, and that's why I will always love C-SPAN. Happy birthday, C-SPAN! My name is Joshua Keating. I'm a senior editor at Slate. And my favorite C-SPAN memory is the time I was on C-SPAN. I was a guest on their morning show, Washington Journal, uh, which, if you haven't seen it, involves them taking uh, unfiltered phone calls from the public. And I was asked by a viewer in Baltimore uh, why we didn't just ship mind control weapons to Afghanistan and so that people would get along with each other. Uh, the other thing is, uh, why don't we just ship a whole large number of these mind control uh, weapons and just make everyone peaceful and end the war? If we could do that, that would certainly be an unreported story worthy of the list. Happy birthday, C-SPAN. So from all of us at Slate, happy birthday, C-SPAN. Take it from me, 40's not that bad. You're aging well. All right, that's the show. You have been listening to What Next. I've been talking. This is Mary Harris. Now you know the whole story. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, and more importantly, you can leave us a rating or review there. And we love it when you do this because it helps other people find the show. So if you have a couple moments, maybe do it. All right. Have a great weekend. Talk to you Monday.